Y'all please humble your hearts with me. Almighty Father, we're so grateful that we could observe another Sabbath with the brethren, that we could encourage one another, and that we could strengthen each other in our faith. We pray that you'll guide us now this day, that you would be with us, and and those that are watching online, those that are we hearing the message later, we pray that you would anoint them with understanding as well. We pray, Almighty Yahweh, now that you'll be with us and, and protect your people as you have done, that we might rejoice before you and make these words yours. In Yahshua's name we pray. Hallelujah. And you may all be seated. I want to welcome our Gideon band of 300. You can sure tell it's uh, vacation time, can't you? Well, I want to interrupt uh, my message with a couple of announcements. Um, you know, if unless you're online a lot, if you've seen our website or get the e-news, you wonder, uh, how are we doing in our outreach? Well, our uh, media department gave me some stats they wanted me to share with you. This is YouTube for the last 28 days. Total watch time is 561,771 minutes. That's over half a million minutes that are watched on YouTube, our YouTube channel. Total views, watching the program on YouTube is 151,612. I, I hope these are encouraging to you because uh, it shows that people are interested in what we have to say that Yahweh puts in their hearts to uh, know the truth. Total downloads on our new app from Roku, iOS, which is uh, iPhone, Android, and Apple TV in the last 28 days is 17,000 downloads. And the website itself, last Sabbath, we had 1,529 views during the Sabbath service. Um, so... Uh, those that, uh, well, in fact, we average about a thousand, a thousand each time, each Sabbath. So, Yahweh has certainly blessed blessed us. Now it's show and tell time. Anybody know what this is? It's insulation. Do you know what this is? We used to, yeah, we called it tar, tar paper when we were building homes. Guess where they were found? All over. <laughs> this is a, a little part of Jefferson City, by the way, and it's on our roof. It's all on their grass. It's across the road, Daryl and Pam's, everywhere. The uh, nearly EF4 tornado, 160 mile an hour winds, as you have probably heard through the news, that came through the center of Jefferson City. Thankfully, according to Yahweh's blessings, it just no one was uh, killed in the in the storm. There were some injuries. Uh, we had probably a dozen brethren living around Jefferson City. None of them were affected. But one one brother was telling me before services. He said uh, the storm was so strong it threw a semi tractor trailer through Sonic Driving, and it tore part of the. Correctional center, you know, the, the big wall around the prison where the guards sit up, big blocks that just took a chunk right out of it. It's just amazing the power of something like this. 
Well, it was Wednesday night, and it was almost midnight, and I was watching the, watching the weather channel and others, the local, and the sirens were going off, and it says, well, it's going to be uh, right about uh, midnight. It's going to be right over Holt Summit. And uh, my kids were calling. Everybody was calling, you know. Where are you? Are you, are you get, get, get safe, you know. And uh, I was just kind of listening. I thought, well, maybe I can hear it, and then I'll worry about it. Because uh, we don't have a basement. And uh, it was just pouring like cats and dogs. So, uh, and I kept watching. And I kept watching and nothing. And uh, I mean, it was a, we, were, we were right in the bullseye. This thing came right up 54 from Eldon, hit there, and was heading right for us. And we were right in. I mean, we couldn't have been in a perfect shot of this thing here in Holt Summit. Then the thing turns east. And Yahweh takes his hand and tears apart this nasty thing, and it just disappeared. My son Ryan said, if it had hit this building with the overhangs, Everything would have gone. It would have just taken that roof and we would just be sitting here, as many people are today, with no roofs. And you can see, you know, from aerial photos and area shots that their, their homes are just open rooms now. And I really feel sorry for those people and keep them in prayer. But, you know, I've never, uh, I lived out in Kansas for 10 years and never saw a tornado. So it's pretty rare something like this would happen. But... Uh, I did see a funnel cloud near Kansas City. That's, that's Tornado Central, by the way, second in line after Oklahoma City. But that's where they come, and they're still coming this way. This, the weather is just crazy. It's been this way for a week, week and a half, Bring more. But uh, last night they said, well, we, uh, we're going to have more tornado watches, and I was up till 1030, and I, I watched you know, the red on the map. It just starts to dissipate, and Yahweh took care of it again. So... Uh, we don't need more rain. Of course, everybody's heard about the floods. And I just hope they don't close the highway to Jeff City, but you never know with this going on. But anyway, uh, I was also watching the Weather Channel. They're interviewing a lady whose home was hit, and she was in it. And she says, you know, I watch programs and, and uh, news reports of people who've been hit by a tornado and their houses are decimated. She says, you have no clue until you live through something like this, what that is like. Lose everything. And all your belongings are some other county, you know. It's, uh, it's, it's a powerful thing. And, uh, but Yahweh does protect his people. And his prayers were answered, and we thank you. We heard Thursday morning from all around the country, how you doing? Are you okay out there? You know, and yeah, we're, we're doing okay. Yahweh is, is good. So uh, it's just... Uh, it's a wonderful thing when uh, Yahweh protects his people. How often have you accepted something that's factual in your life and you believed it all your life? Well, I imagine each, each one of us has had that experience. We all have believed things we found out later were wrong. Even conventional wisdom often turns out to be just smoke and mirrors. You hear it all the time. Well, now scientists believe and change uh, change history, you know, of what people thought. Fifty years ago, asbestos was hailed as a miracle, fire-retardant material. And I remember in grade school, they were passing pieces of this stuff around. You're tearing it apart and looking at the fibers, you know, and now they find out it's a major cause of mesothelioma. We were involved, you know, physically handling this stuff. 
uh, when I was uh, also in uh, the same uh, science class, uh, we were passing around uh, balls of mercury, you know, we had it in our hand. Maybe you've had this experience too. Rolling it around, a piece of it falls on the ground, spreads out into a thousand BBs, you know. And uh, I was talking to my dentist. I said, do you do, you do amalgams? He, which is, you know, what mercury is part of. He said, oh, no. He said, no, I don't do those. He said, imagine one of the most toxic substances on earth, and they stick it in your mouth. You know, what we believe in ignorance is sometimes very amazing. Polish astronomer Nicholas Copernicus was the first to say that the earth was not the center of the universe. And the church just lambasted him because they thought it was. You know, the earth has to be the center. It's, you know, it's everything. Well, it's going to be one day. They were just too premature because when Yahweh comes down, he, after the millennium, he's going to set up his kingdom right here on earth. The law will go forth out of Zion. He's going to have his, his, uh, his throne right here at Jerusalem. So it will be the center of the universe, but right now uh, it's not. But it is, I believe, the focus of Yahweh throughout the universe. I, I, I don't believe there's other beings out there yet because it says we're the first of creation. But at any rate, how often is conventional wisdom proved wrong when evidence to the contrary comes to light? The majority opinion is frequently in error. Can't trust the majority, you know. Just because everybody believes it, seems to believe it, doesn't make it so. In fact, it's almost axiomatic that the majority of popular beliefs will somehow be proved somewhere in error at some time. Ask the average churchgoer, what is the theme of the Bible? Try that sometime. Just try it. What is the theme of the Bible? What message does the Bible convey? Why do we have a Bible? What's it for? What's the main glue holding it together? Do you know? I won't have any idea. Is it just a mishmash of stories about people anciently going around, living out their lives, attacking each other, building empires and fighting enemies or is it just about religious maxims and actions of a supreme heavenly being intervening in people's lives? What's it all about? Why do we have a Bible? Well, doctrines that have been accepted for centuries with little or no proof often come up short when you look into the Bible to prove them. We know that. In fact, you could say we're iconoclastic. We're, we're busting all these ideas that aren't so that have been taught for 2,000 years because we actually looked into the Bible. You know, we challenge everyone to prove everything for themselves and not just us. The Bible tells you to do that. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. It tells us to do that. So we're serious about this. We're serious about it in our Bible studies. Uh, you know, it, it just, whenever we look into the word, we want to know why and what it says and why. 2 Timothy 2.15, show yourselves approved by studying unto Elohim, a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So if you have the truth, you've got to separate right from wrong, rightly dividing. In other words, give it to me straight. I want to hear the straight scoop. Don't sugarcoat it or mince words or... Make, try to make everybody in the congregation happy by not being too strong. Just tell me what I want to hear. 
tell me fables. More and more groups, I'm afraid, are not challenging their people to study the word. And I'm not just talking about nominal worship, brethren, if you get my drift. This is serious. We could have accepted errors all our lives. And in the final judgment, be ashamed because we never proved it. It's our responsibility to prove what we believe. One day we're going to stand before the judge and he's going to ask us why. Why didn't you prove it? Why didn't you follow? In fact, don't take anyone's word for it, including pastors and teachers, until you first verify it for yourself. I wish we knew this 50 years ago, 60 years ago. Don't assume it's correct and true. Even if your parents or grandparents believed it all your life, look into it. They could be wrong too and probably are. In other words, be active about your faith, not passive. Be active about it. Get into it. You know, I see the people that come to the feast. They're active in their faith. They wouldn't take off time a couple times a year for week-long feasts. They want to be involved in their faith. You know, some might accuse us of heresy, but they run the other direction when you ask them to prove it. Show me where I'm wrong on this particular doctrine or teaching. Prove it. Well, they ignore scriptures that contradict their points because they don't understand them or have never studied them. They use blind accusations. They attack the messenger instead of his message. Getting to the truth is the last thing on their minds. They just don't want you around telling them they might be wrong. So they fire their volleys and then they run. They're afraid that if they could be wrong and you could be right, and that would turn their world all upside down. And they're right. It would, because it changes your life to learn the truth. Why did they try repeatedly to kill Yahshua and Paul all the time? Because they went against the established religion. They feared the truth and did not want to make a single step toward it. So they attacked them. So if your minister shies from or even disallows the tough questions, run as fast as you can the other direction. Because obviously he doesn't know the truth. There's a reason he doesn't want his feet held to the fire. A sister just coming into the truth once asked me if I would discuss the Sabbath Sunday doctrine with her minister. This was years ago. By the way, that sister is in this congregation. And... Uh, she wanted to know because she wasn't sure, you know, if uh, what we were teaching was right. And I said, sure, I'll talk to him about it. And you can sit in. And Well, minister said he would, but time comes. He, oh, I, got, I can't make it. I got a wedding or I, I can't make it this week. This happened three times. She says, I get it. I get it. He had no leg to stand on and he had to have known it. Proving everything you believe is commanded in Scripture, however, and someone who stands up and purports to be teaching that should know better. We aren't, we're not afraid of questions. We get questions all the time. All week long we get questions. We're not afraid of questions. Some ministries, oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> we don't take questions. Why? Why? Why when it says prove all things, hold fast, that which is good? Notice it says all things, and that means yourself, not just the minister. It means yourself. When you're challenged by a new teaching, check it out. This goes for false as well as true teachings. Get your eyeballs into the word. 
Never mind that your church may not teach it. Prove it yourself. Get to the, you know, there's thousands, well, at least hundreds of denominations. And they all teach something different. That means by definition, they can't all be right. That also means only one is right. If you find it's true and right, you're commanded in the scriptures to walk in it. There are hundreds of these groups out there saying they teach the truth. And why do you think there's hundreds of groups out there? Because someone else says, no, that isn't right. And he starts his own. And, uh, you know, it just grows like topsy. Yahshua said about the clerics of his days in Matthew 15, 14, let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both are going to fall into the ditch. So why would you want to follow someone who's going into the ditch? In Matthew 15, 9, he calls doctrine that is not inspired vain, vain. It's worthless. It's pointless. It's fake news. Again, the apostle Paul tells us in Acts 17, 11 about a people who were more noble than those in Thessalonica. More noble. What did he mean by that? And that they received the word with all readiness of mind. Yeah, tell me more. I want to hear more. And searched the scriptures every day to make sure these things were so. That's what he wants to see. These were, there, there were a lot of institutionalized Jews as well as Greeks in Thessalonica who were obviously skeptical of Paul's message. Were afraid of it. Didn't want to get into it. Didn't know for sure, so they avoided it. But the Bereans were open to truth because they were called noble. Noble. You want to be called noble? Get into the word. Prove it. They searched it out. There was no knee-jerk animosity against the truth. They didn't rush to argue or defend themselves or attack the messenger. They didn't defend what they've always thought was true. They said, okay, let's look at it. Show me the evidence. They sat down with Paul and said, okay, let me show you this. The Sabbath is not the first day of the week. By commandment, it's the fourth commandment that it's the seventh day. Really? Well, we didn't. I never, nobody ever showed me that. Or, or when I said it, when I recited the Ten Commandments, I didn't even think about that. So they did attack Paul, and the Bereans had. They did not attack Paul, and they had open minds to, uh, to what he was saying. He faced resistance everywhere. And when he got to the Berea, he probably thought, wow, what a breath of fresh air. I can finally get somewhere with someone. And he did. He got, uh, the guy was amazing. I don't know how. he did. <laughs> Taking the word of Yahweh to Gentiles, to pagans, to Greeks who had their own religion, it's amazing what he could do. But Yahweh was behind him. The majority couldn't see past their fables. Their prejudice caused them to attack Paul, probably call him a cult, which is what he said in Acts 24, 14. They call my teaching heresy. It's the Greek hairesis, and it, it's, it means uh, doctrine of personal and private beliefs leading to formations of sex, S-E-C-T-S. Yahweh did not give us his word so that we can leave it up to someone else to interpret for us. Each of us is responsible. For ourselves, what we believe, what we take is true, we're responsible for it. Why? Uh, you know, Peter in 2 Peter 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of Yahweh. It's Yahweh breed. That's what inspire means. 
inspiration. Yahweh breathed. It comes from the very breath of Yahweh. And why, do we, why does he breathe it for us? Why does he give it to us? Because it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. If we're wrong, we can find the truth in it. For instruction in righteousness, how to live the life that we're to live. If you go by the scriptures themselves, you can't go wrong. They lead to salvation. Why the need to be instructed in righteousness if you're saved by faith alone? See, they got that one covered already. Oh, well, well, you don't have to obey it. You're already, you're under faith. You're under grace and you don't have to do anything. Have you ever wondered if, if only one group could possibly have everything right, where are they? What denomination do you go to? Or group of believers that one day be given a place in the kingdom under Yahshua the Messiah? What group of believers? I want to be in it. Do they have a name? A related question is, what did the early New Testament believers call themselves? What did they call themselves? These would be those who were taught by the Savior and the apostles themselves. They got their beliefs and practices directly from the source of truth. So what do they call themselves? What was the name? What, they, what name did people tag on to them? Well, as we know, New Testament Assembly of Believers did not have a specific name. Isn't that interesting? They didn't have a name they went by. They were not a denomination. They were simply called people of the way or that way in the book of Acts. The term Christian was first applied by Greek Gentiles to the Apostle Paul's Hebraic-based faith after he began to minister at Antioch. And that's in Acts 11, 25, 26. The term Christian is Greek, and it means someone who espouses Christos. Surprisingly, it's a term used only three times in the New Testament. That's mind-boggling. These are the people that are supposed to be following the truth. These are, these are the true assembly throughout the New Testament. And it's only referred to by name three times and basically by someone else. At least that was the first one. Basically, I think it's because the early believers were Hebrews, not Greek. The faith of the New Testament is Hebraic, based on the Old Testament scriptures. It's the scriptures are the only ones they had. It's the ones they taught from. It's the one they preached from. When they said the word says, they were talking about the Old Testament. Paul didn't have a chance to write anything in the New Testament yet. He, did, he came later. There was no New Testament. When Yahshua walked this earth, the Old Testament was all that was there. Whenever he or the apostles quoted scripture, they used the insights, the word of the Old Testament. What about the name Christian? Are there any clues there about truth? Well, in Acts 26, 28, we read then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost you persuade me to be a Christian. See, he got him on trial. They were going through a test. He was, Paul had a testimony of his, of his uh, work. He was basically on trial. And he was so good, <laughs> so good at explaining himself and, and, and turning the argument around, he manures the royal inquiry and nearly converts the ruler, Herod Agrippa II. Now, either that or he was 
he was either serious or he was sarcastic when he said, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. That's what he called it. Well, one thing for sure, the term Christian was applied to Paul by this Hellenic, Hellenistic Jew. But amazingly, he never, uh, we never find Paul or any of the apostles using that term Christian. Why didn't they, if that's the name of the true group? Why never, they never used it for themselves or for their movement. Don't you find that a bit odd? Paul finds common ground with Agrippa, and the common basis is that he also believed the prophets. In saying this, he links the Old Testament with the New Testament movement. He links the, links the foundation, the Old Testament, to what he was preaching so in teaching Herod, he teaches us a key truth. The foundation, the basis of truth starts in the Old Testament. You throw that out and you're missing two-thirds of the Bible. Note also that Yahshua the Messiah personally never gave any name to his group. He never said the Peter, James, and John, come on, you Christians. Never did. He refers to his followers simply as disciples, believers, Followers, friends, but does not give them a group name. The earliest body of believers were named Nazarenes, as far as we can tell historically in the New Testament, or the followers of the one from Nazareth. In about the year 50, the crisis developed that Paul had to deal with by consulting the other elders at Jerusalem. It began with those who thought that converts had to switch to Judaism before they accepted the new faith. The new faith. I put that in parentheses. They had to switch to Judaism first and be circumcised and all that to become a Jew first. Because that's where all these people were coming from. They were coming from Judaism. Learning of Yahshua and accepting his truth. Many. But before they could enter the new covenant, they thought they had to go back into Judaism. These followers of the Messiah in the New Testament believed and practiced the Old Testament. Obviously, like I said, the only one in existence. They kept the holy days, given in Leviticus 23. They worshiped on the Sabbath. They called him by his name. Just as they found in the Old Testament. They weren't going to pollute themselves with things like unclean food. Oh, here, have a ham sandwich. Peter says, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. This is... Ten years after Yahshua left. All of this is easily proved in the New Testament. Just follow the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And you'll clearly see that they were law-observant people. Rather than thinking Paul changed and now made obedience unnecessary, just read what he said about it. Read his words. Get it from the horse's mouth. Just look at his own example and see what he taught and how he contradicted this belief that he came to abolish everything. He kept the weekly Sabbath, seven annual feasts, long after the resurrection of Yahshua. Why didn't he get the message that those days were just for Jews or Israel of the Old Testament? You don't have to do that now. Obviously, he knew they were for him and for us and didn't tell us that they were done away. Not once. Paul was taught by the resurrected Messiah himself. Now, this is always, people say, well, 
I don't believe in Paul. Why? Why not? He was taught by Yash himself. The resurrected Messiah spent time with Paul telling him what, and we can prove that in Scripture, telling him what to teach. He wrote in Galatians 1.11, But I certify, brethren, that the good news which was preached of me is not after man. I didn't come up with this. I didn't write the book. For I neither received it of, my, of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Yahshua the Messiah, the revelation of a living Messiah. 1 Corinthians 1.17, For Messiah sent me not to baptize, but to preach the good news. His, his mission was get the word out. That was what he was sent for. And then Acts 9.15, But the master said unto him, when he gave his commission, he said, go your way, Paul. Go your way for me. Tell the people about the good news. Be a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. The early believers in the New Testament were all Hebrews. The Messiah, Yahshua, told his disciples to go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was what their mission was. Later on, it would expand to the rest of the world. Macedonia, Greece, Rome, it would go way out there to the rest of the world. But right now, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, meaning the Hebrews, the Jews of his day. They would understand it because they knew the Old Testament. And they could quote from it. And they could quote all the prophecies of Yahshua the Messiah. And then ask, how could he not be the Messiah? He fulfilled all of these. I think we did a a message one time on how one person could fulfill all the prophecies about Messiah in the Old Testament. And it's astronomical. One person, by chance, just anybody could do that. Couldn't happen. Couldn't happen. These 12, Yahshua sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not unto the way of Gentiles and into any city of the Samaritans, and to you not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He confirmed this directive in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the evangel of Messiah, for it is the power of Elohim unto salvation to everyone, everyone that believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And people say, well, the Old Testament, that's, that's Jewish, that's... that's uh, that's Israelite, that's, uh, that's not for us. Uh, we're modern-day Greeks. Hey, he had to go to the Jew first because Yahweh says they are my people. They need to understand. And then the rest of us can be grafted into that same promise. That is the message that he gave in Romans. But Paul's primary mission, along with Peter's, was to convert uh, those of non-Jewish descent later, known collectively as Gentiles. But they had one real problem. They were joining an assembly of Hebraic believers. Hebraic believers. And to be Jewish traditionally involved circumcision. So they had a problem, a question. And that drove the dispute over circumcision. Some say that was the first church council, if you can believe that. That's what they'll tell you in that certain church. That was the first church council when when Paul goes to the elders in Jerusalem and hashes out this question, do you have to become a Jew first before you become a believer? Well, they can say what they want about it. Got more to say on that in a minute. But anyway, it drove the dispute. 
The laws of the, New, of the Old Testament were never a problem in the New Testament. It was what man added to those laws that became an issue. Dogma. Dogma. Added laws. That's what became an issue with Paul. And people extrapolate that from he was throwing out all the laws. No, he wasn't. Churchianity has the same problem today, thinking Paul taught against the Old Testament. Laws. He proved he was a law keeper. Hey, come on, just look at his example. He says he believed in the law. But most don't believe what he said, plainly said. They don't believe it. They also never ask themselves, by what authority did Paul have to change a covenant of Yahweh himself? How could Paul do that? Change a covenant of Yahweh himself and say, we're throwing all this out. We're starting over. Clean slate. You don't have to believe anything. You don't have to do anything. He didn't have that authority. He admitted. He didn't. Himself, he would tell you, I don't have that authority. What do you th- I would love to have him standing here and explain some of these things. You know, he'd say, wow, where'd you get that? You know, you didn't get it from me. I just, I just love to see that. Think about it. He had, he had no power to do away with biblical law. He had no authority to trump the Savior who said in Matthew 5, 17 that he had not come to do away with the law. So where does this idea that Paul supersedes Yahshua by doing away with the law? No, there's something wrong in the interpretation because these weren't Yahweh's laws. They were man-made that they tacked on to keep themselves separate from the Gentiles. That's all it was. Then you got the tor- the, uh, the Talmud and the, all these other added books that they added to it. So if you ask a Jew about, well, tell me about this. Well, tradition says, or more like the, the, uh, the uh, writings say, you know, they're talking about their own man-made writings. No, I want to know what the Bible says. James in Acts 15.19 settles the matter over whether to make Gentiles get circumcised and go into Judaism. First, he says, okay, wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to Elohim. Don't add, don't pile on. I mean, it's unnecessary. But that we write unto them that they abstain from... All right, here's the problem. They've got issues. (laughs) They've got baggage they've got to deal with. They were idol worshipers. They worshiped pagan things. They did pagan things. He said, here's what you've got to do. First, tell them. Abstain from pollutions of idols. Don't do that. And fornication, because that was part of their worship. And from things strangled and from blood. They were blood drinkers. He said, get rid of all this. You've got to change your ways, people. For Moses of old time has in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Number one, he says, when they go to the synagogue, and that should be telling right there, they're going to where the law is going to be taught, where the Jews were gathering. When they go there, every Sabbath day, they're going to hear Moses, which means the law from Moses, being taught. They're going to figure out the rest. They're going to learn the rest through the messages. But right now, they got a problem, and they can't be doing this stuff and coming into the synagogue and all those other things because that's pagan worship, and we're not, we're not, they're not into that anymore. They're not supposed to be into that. So stop that first. He explains that the law is preached every, in every synagogue all over the place, and they'll learn the necessity of obedience then. Clean up the filth of your life first. 
Well, they needed a cleansing. You can't take the old baggage with you, and that's the part of the problem I've even seen in the assembly. So people rely on what they were taught before. Some of it might be accurate. Most of it probably not. But it was an early problem still with us. Some still need to eliminate their traditional church mindset when it comes to obedience. They still kind of stretch the limits, if you know what I mean. Um, if I don't make it to church on Easter or Xmas this year, so what? That's the mindset of where they came from. So what? Doesn't matter. That translates to if I miss a feast or part of it, that's okay. Well, it's not okay with the one who matters, brethren. It's not okay. Yahweh didn't give us a list of exceptions when it comes to missing the feasts or the Sabbath. I talked with a gal this week who's on fire for the truth. And I said, you know, you need to come to the feast. It's in four months. Get ready. It's coming. Get ready. Oh, I want to. I want to. I said, no, you make a commitment. You will come because it's part of true worship. Become resolved. Come, you know what, or high water. And speaking of high water, <laughs> we got that problem too. <laughs> At least not here. We're on a hill. And that's why they call it a summit, you know. But anyway, um, that you will go no matter what because you know who's going to be there at every turn trying to dissuade you, throwing up obstacles, throwing up roadblocks. You can see it. I've seen it for 50 years, and I know it's going to happen again for some. Mark my word. We've seen it a thousand times. You start, the excuses start coming a few weeks before the feast. And the biggest one is putting family ahead of Yahweh. Oh, you know, they got a certain relative that's got this issue, and I've got to stay and help. Or, uh, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I got something going on in my family, and, and and my wife or my my husband, and you know, they just on and on and on. It's the biggest, it's the biggest hindrance, I think, to being totally obedient to Yahweh. My question is, how about the family of Yahweh? Isn't that important? Doesn't that rank above your unbelieving family? How about being with the family of Yahweh and helping them? How about fellowshipping with them at the feast, encouraging them, teaching them when you sit down at a meal or something, they bring up questions. How about that? No, I got to stay home because I got this family issue. And then year after year, it's the same stuff. Oh, I mean to be there. Some people have been meaning to be here for the last 20 years. I don't know. When Yasha said, come and see my face, at a feast, I just hope. I pray he doesn't say, I never knew you because I never saw your face at the feast. I hope that never happens. So, you know, we need to encourage one another. Get with it. Quit playing this stuff because there's always going to be obstacles. You just have to overcome them. There's always going to be little things getting in the way. And you just say, I'm going. I'm going. I'll be there next year. I don't care. I commit now to be there. It's not like, well, if I make it next year, no, you're, you're, I'm going to be there. If Yahweh wanted your whole family, he would have called it. And sometimes he does call the whole family. Otherwise, don't neglect his family. My message for today. And that's sobering, too. If you're 
going to neglect him. A reading of the New Testament shows that these were no great sweeping monumental changes in going from Hebraic truths to the New Testament. Instead of throwing it all out, there just been a few tweaks here and there. We know there, this, the animal sacrifices were changed to Yahshua's sacrifice. We know that there were a few administrative changes, a different priesthood, Melchizedek instead of uh, Levitical. A few changes here and there. But not monumental throw-it-all-out changes, as the churches would tell you. I find this very fascinating. According to Eusebius's history, the first 15 bishops of Jerusalem were, he says, quote, of the circumcision. Of the circumcision. It means they were Jewish. Did you know they, they call the, the, the pope the bishop of Rome? Did you know that all these early popes were bishops? They weren't popes. It's not like they had this succession thing going on, you know, with the little, the little house and the smoke coming out, and that's how they choose the next pope. These were all bishops in their church. Conversion means accepting Yahshua as the Messiah. Elimination of man-made laws, understanding the spiritual meaning of obeying from the heart, and not just physically, but you've got to have your heart into it too, and that'll, that'll change everything. When your heart is attuned to Yahweh, you just say, hey, I, I do what he asked me to do, and I will do what he asked me to do. It's that important to me. It's my salvation, by the way. We don't play games with our salvation. The, what we see today out in nominal worship developed from a very diverse background, as we, those who know history know. In the second and third centuries, uh, there were Christians who, of course, believed in one mighty one. But there were others that believed in a dozen. There were others that believed in one per day. 365 different mighty ones. This is early Christianity. And this is what influenced such things as Halloween. Believe it or not, Halloween. All Hallows Eve. It's the evening that comes before All Saints Day. That's where they get the word, Halloween. It's a, a contraction for hallowed evening. So All Saints Day was kind of a catch-all day for all those saints that they didn't pray to before and might have missed. We'll do it all on one day, All Saints Day. And so they mixed in a lot of paganism and stuff that, uh, you know, uh, we, 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 we're pantheists too. We believe in lots of mighty ones. So they start worshiping saints. And the uh, pagans got right in on it. Oh, yeah, 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 that sounds like us. And so they added all these pagan things on top of Halloween. And it went on and on and on. But one characteristic is found throughout the early assemblies in the New Testament. There was explicit fidelity to the law and to the truth. To the law and to the prophets, which pointed to Yahshua's coming. And when he came, he pointed back to the law. He didn't negate it. He pointed back to it. Obey. He says, I'm not here to say anything new. Whatever my father gave me, that's what I'm teaching now. That's what I live by now. Whatever my father gave me, that's what I do, he said. How could he change it on his own accord? He, of course he didn't change anything. He pointed back to the obedience his father commanded. And that's the big elephant in the room that people just ignore today. 99% ignore it, and they ignore John 14, 31. 
what my father said, that's what I do. He clearly understood himself in the Hebraic context, not the Grecian context. In Luke 24, 44, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And yet the Jews were purposely blind to that fact. But the Old Testament screamed out the prophecies that only Yahshua himself could have possibly fulfilled. There must be a thousand of them. I never counted them, but there's a lot of them. I think it's going to be in the next, if it isn't in this one, in the... I don't want the cat out of the bag. We have another Bible coming up. I'm not, that's all I'm going to say. But we got some we got to get. <laughs> we got to sell first. Uh, make room. Anyway, um, we need to have a specific message sometime on institutional blindness. Institutional blindness. It's been a plague for 2,000 years, both in Christianity and Judaism. They both rely on their traditions. They both rely on what the church or the synagogue has taught. And so we find Paul affirming in Acts 24, 14 that he is a believer and follower of the Old Testament. He says, I believe all things that are written in the law and the prophets. Now, how in the world could he say, I'm doing away with this, I'm doing away with that. You don't have to worry about the law. And he says, you believed it. And then, of course, and then he practiced it. He taught it. And then with his life, he practiced it. Three, three confirmations that he did not do with, away with the law. He was misunderstood by the religious majority of his day. They thought he came to deny the law and the need to obey the one they worshipped. That's what they thought. He came to destroy the law and any need to the obey. Here are some other references to the term way that was used in the New Testament assembly. Acts 9, 1-2. Shaul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the master. This is before his conversion. Went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that he found any belonging to the way, that's the way of truth, the New Testament believers, both men and women that he might bring bound to Jerusalem. Indications are that some of them were put to death. Now when he said, I was the least of the apostles, when he said, I, I don't deserve, he said, to, you know, be a representative of Yahweh. This is what he's talking about, what he, what he did in ignorance. But Yahweh says, what you do in ignorance, he won't hold you to if you repent. Acts 19, 8. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of Elohim. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way, why doesn't it say something like Christianity? It doesn't. Before the multitude, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Verse 23, and about that time they arose, there arose no small disturbance concerning the way. Acts 24, 22. And when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way, he deferred them and said, when Lysias, the chief captain, shall come, I will know the uttermost of your matter, blah, blah, blah. Epiphanius, one of the church fathers, gave us an actual name by name for the New Testament people, called them the Nazarenes. 
His, uh, it's called a panorium, generally known as the refutation of all heresies, was written during the period 374 to 376. So this is about the time of Constantine, somewhere in there. Panarian 29 is a rather extensive treatment of his sources and, and data on these Nazarenes. Well, let's find out what he said about these early believers, these Nazarenes. It's probably the earliest group of believers of which we have record outside the New Testament scriptures. Because after, you know, after Acts, we just have basically the letters of Paul. We don't know what happened to these people. What, 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 you know, what, what really what? So he continues, he says, for they use not only the New Testament, but also the old, 375 years, 340-some years after Yahshua. These Nazarenes, these believers, are still using the Old Testament. Answer that, those who think they can just throw it out. Like the Jews, he said, for the legislation and the prophets and the scriptures, which are called the Bible by the Jews, are not rejected by them as they are by those mentioned above. It says they have a good knowledge of Hebrew and read the Old Testament and at least one evangel in that language. Hey, evangels in Hebrew, there we go. How about that? Everybody thinks it's just... They were written in Greek. These Nazarenes, quote, have a good mastery of the Hebrew language. For the entire law and the prophets and what is called the scriptures, I mentioned the poetic books, Kings, Chronicles, and Esther, and all the others, are read by them in Hebrew as in the case with Jews, of course. Of course. <laughs> to us, so, of course. But guy out here in the church says, hmm? They have the entire Evangel of Matthew in Hebrew. Quoting, they have the entire Evangel of Matthew, and we know that's true, that it was, uh, there was a Hebrew Matthew, it is carefully preserved by them in Hebrew letters. Jerome, a church father who translated the Bible, we know, into Latin, is another important source of New Testament practice. He wrote, the most important conclusion of this chapter is that the Nazarenes were not mentioned by earlier fathers, not only because they did not exist by, uh, but rather because they were still generally considered to be acceptably orthodox. Huh. Here's also what those orthodox Nazarenes believed, according to Jerome. They hold to a very high belief in Yahshua, that is, virgin birth, preexistence. He was of divine sonship. They have a high regard of Paul and the ministry to the Gentiles. They accept the Tanakh, Old Testament, and New Testament, he wrote. They were not considered heretical until the mistake of Epiphanius, who confused them with the Ebionites, and that's how they got off track, thinking the early believers threw away the Old Testament. If there's anything we can draw in connection to the very original assembly in the New Testament, if there's anything we can draw from that, it would be those known as New Testament Nazarenes. You know, if only denominational worship would recognize and quit running from the truth, quit rejecting 
the basis of faith, the Old Testament. Quit rejecting his name as something not important. He has many names. If they just stopped this and become aligned with the word, there wouldn't be thousands of denominations. There wouldn't be that many. There'd be hopefully one. With emphasis on the reason for obedience, the sacrifice of the Messiah for sin, and that we have to follow what he taught. In John, first, in 1 John 2.7 we read, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment, which you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word, which you heard from the beginning. And unless we get the foundation right, brethren, as you can tell these poor people who suffered such loss in Jefferson City, until we get that foundation right, the structure is going to be weak and it's going to fall. It'll collapse. If the foundation is good, you are good to build the building to be sturdy and strong. The foundation of the New Testament is the Old Testament, whether they deny it or not. It doesn't really stand on its own. It's got to have a basis to it. It is what our Savior taught. It is what his followers believed and is what keeps proper worship proper as we follow the examples that he set. Too bad these facts are not taught today. And so my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Hopefully we can change at least some people's lives in that as we reach out to, you know, wherever we're reaching to and try to teach them the, the fact, the Bible they're reading is just like it says. It doesn't need to be interpreted some other way. We can't let ignorance destroy us either. We have to keep getting into the word. Getting into the word. We had talked to a, a couple who just came into the truth. They were in a, a group for 25 years. I won't give their names, but I, after the Bible study, I said, uh, well, that kind of like what you're used to? They said, oh, no. It's a lot deeper than what we're used to. They didn't get into this stuff. Well, when you read the Bible and, and, and study it for yourself, the truth comes out, you know? We can't let ignorance destroy us. Everyone needs to be a noble Berean and prove all things. And may you do that. May Yahweh bless you. Hallelujah.